The Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, the first chapter. Lord Jesus, Lord. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth to Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. In an early scene in Star Wars, the first real Star Wars, Darth Vader confronts the captured Princess Leia on the CR-90 Corellian Corvette. She has just loaded the plans to the Death Star, complete with its ingeniously and purposefully mal-engineered exhaust ports, into R2-D2's memory bank, and now she is called what she is, a traitor. In fact, the whole line is, you are part of a rebel alliance and a traitor. I thought you would all just jump in with, take her away. Isn't it like Pavlovian at this? Anyway, a traitor indeed. In Leia's world, you see an empire that demanded her loyalty rose to power by the execution of innocent people, and generally prohibited living without its expressed written consent, was a bad thing. Allegiance to a political figure, the emperor, who was something like an evil god, was far less attractive to Leia and the gang than freedom to be simple men and women just trying to make their way through the galaxy. So they resisted. And they were found to be traitors as a result. Are Christians inherently traitors? It's a question I've been sort of asking myself a lot this week. Of course, not necessarily, but maybe. Maybe we need to be from time to time. In fact, in some ways, you probably already are a, a traitor, for the society in which you live is changing pretty quickly right underneath your feet. The word traitor, you might have noticed, was used a lot in the last few weeks. Those who questioned the veracity of the November elections were maybe called traitors. Maybe there will be treason trials, although I doubt it, for those who stormed the Capitol this week. But foregoing the immediate concerns of our day, in a sense, all Christians have a higher God and king and lord than any political system could install. Christians all have a first allegiance 
to God and can only really pledge allegiance with integrity to any nation whose ideals are not in conflict with our faith. I mean, we would say, for example, that Christians under the Third Reich really couldn't have pledged allegiance to to that state with any integrity. But because we don't really have, I don't think, any single or clear understanding of what our nation is, your Christian convictions undoubtedly could lead someone to label you a traitor. It's possible, maybe even likely, And maybe I kind of hope so, because if we do not understand our faith as possessing an ultimate allegiance to God, then we've really missed the point of it. And like any good resistance, we have our own codes and rights and language to define and limit this group of resistors. Of course, the right to first narrowly define the resistance is baptism. Baptism places you in the community and in the family and in the name of God. You are baptized in, or really into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And from that moment on, you belong to God. He is your Heavenly Father and your Lord and your King. In many countries, to go through with this rite invites the death penalty. Of course, since you are reborn in the rite of baptism, the death penalty is not as ultimate as its enforcers would like to believe. But the point is that the enemies of Christianity know how significant baptism is because they are willing to kill those who receive it. Also, ironically, it was those who preached a second baptism, the Anabaptists, who were called traitors to the state about 500 years ago. In Luther's day, one's baptism was really the beginning of their citizenship into the state. To renounce your infant baptism, then, was to renounce your birthright, your citizenship. And the uh, princes didn't take to that very kindly. Now, I don't think the Anabaptists were really interested in renouncing their citizenship per se. They were arguing against infant baptism on biblical grounds. And certainly, no one's baptism into the Christian faith should be connected to membership into the state because our baptism is not the state's proof of ownership. Rather, it is our incorporation into the body of Christ. Therefore, wherever Christians find themselves, at any time, in any place, we are called to speak against injustice. We have our own law, you might say. It's the law that every human being, I would argue, lives under, but we proclaim it and describe it as our own. We have our own comprehensive view of the world. We have our own king. And as I've said before, feel like I'm a bit of a broken record, but I'll keep saying it. We live in God's world. This is God's world. God is the creator. We are his creatures. He speaks, and we live by his word. And as important and as wonderful as it is to have good government, Christians are never 100% beholden to any government. We are always part of a rebel alliance, And traitors, 
especially when we are told to live in a way that contradicts the edicts of God. This week, headlines, before all those other headlines, were made in the wake of a prayer ending Amen and Ah Women. You've probably heard it. And I don't think I really need to elaborate in a worship setting that that, that ending of that prayer really made no sense. Uh, amen is a Hebrew word. It means verily or truly. And it has nothing to do with males. So to create a female version of that word, it, it, it literally makes no sense. But it's actually kind of worse than that. You know, we sort of chuckle at these things, but it really is representative how reason and logic and language have now all of a sudden just become up for debate. It's like anyone can just make anything up and it's fine because they really believe in it or they really feel it. The utter foolishness of it goes to show that we're governed at least by some men and women who disregard the world as God has established it. In the name of a higher good, we must deny the limits that God himself has placed within his own creation. Because language and mathematics, these things are governed by the laws of logic. To rewrite language in a way that makes no sense is to deny those laws. And make no mistake, that's just an impossibly small window uh, of the way that God's law and gospel are considered optional, if not repulsive. Art and literature are really about deconstruction now, right? We've got to break down everything we thought to be holy or good or true. There are more genders now than people, I think. We're spending more money than exists in the world. That seems like a very bad idea. We think pretty much any life choice can be justified if the person holding it really wants it. If these are the hallmarks of our society, if I'm right in those descriptions, and of course I hope I'm wrong. I always almost hope I'm wrong. But if I'm right, then you must resist. You must be a traitor. You must own the citizenship given to you at your baptism and fight for that people and that kingdom, and that nation. If and when, for example, laws are passed that are at odds with God's laws, you must resist. Because it's not just that we were baptized once. You are a baptized Christian. We are part of this nation, and this people, and this community. When Jesus was baptized, a new administration was inaugurated. Jesus began his ministry having received a baptism from John that he did not deserve because, of course, John's was a baptism of repentance and Jesus had never sinned. This baptism then is a break in history. Before Jesus, all of the baptisms were baptisms of repentance. But after the death and resurrection of Jesus, baptism is not just a baptism of repentance. It is a right a promise. Something very special has been given to you in your baptism. For not only do you have certain responsibilities in God's kingdom, like we have talked about, you have certain rights and gifts. And those rights and gifts are given to you by God 
and therefore they are unassailable. No one can take them from you. The grace of God will never be taken from you. Heaven will be yours for all eternity. God will never break his promises or go back on his word. God is not for sale, and his kingdom won't change with the times. It is fixed. It is fixed as the nature and the character of God are fixed. In God's kingdom, your sins have been forgiven, and death has forever lost its sting. What we see at Jesus' baptism is the authority of the Father himself given over to his Son. We heard it. God speaks just like he spoke in Genesis 1 at the creation. And just like in Genesis 1, the Spirit of God is present at the baptism of Jesus too. This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. The new world order has begun. By God's grace, we are caught up in it through our baptism. May we have the strength to be good citizens within it. Amen.